Faith Fitzgerald, a name that is synonymous with excellence, humility, and humanism. She is loved by her students and respected and admired by her colleagues. Her uncanny diagnostic skills are an inspiration to us future doctors and life-saving for her patients. Watching her speak and listen to her patients, meticulously doing a focused yet thorough physical exam, paying attention to the faintest sound, discoloration and misstep is truly watching an artist at her best. Her love for literature adds a different dimension to her craft, helping her pay attention to the most minute detail and ask questions that not even Dr. Gregory House would ask. When asked for her bio to formulate her introduction, her response was, the fuss should be about the graduates, not about me, so shorter is better. Well, Dr. Fitzgerald, you're right. But however, we cannot let the opportunity pass by to highlight some of her accomplishments and accolades. Dr. Faith Fitzgerald completed her MD degree at UC San Francisco in 1969 and became board certified in internal medicine in 1973. She has co-authored a plethora of scientific papers ranging from protein disease states to medical education, physical diagnosis, and bioethics. She is a master of the American College of Physicians and a regent of the American College of Physicians. Since 1973, she has been teaching medical students and residents, and through her decades of service, she has won dozens of teaching awards, both national and regional. Most recently, the 2013-2014 Distinguished Teaching Award from the UC Davis Academic Senate. We are truly honored and humbled to have Dr. Fitzgerald as our UC Davis School of Medicine Class of 2014 commencement speaker. Please help us welcome Dr. Faith Fitzgerald to the podium. Thank you. I, I have to talk to them. It's just, we've been close. So I can't see turning my back on them. And you will, I hope, forgive me. I'll try to turn to you periodically. About two months ago, I got an email from a second year student to ask me about the value of humanities courses. As a humanities major in college, he was uh, uh, kind of taken aback, I think, by the overwhelming dominance on the medical sciences in his preclinical classes. Now, the truth is that science is and must be the mind of medicine. It's what differs us from quacks and what patients depend on for future well-being. Yet some say we should, in addition, teach humanities in medical school because applicants preferentially selected for admission are science techno-geeks. But that's not true. Amongst you are musicians and authors and poets and historians and dancers. You come from many different cultures, many different languages, and many different religions. Now, the humanities are not extinguished by medical school, as is clearly evidenced in this class, though some of them may be laid aside for a while. I've also heard the argument that we should require the humanities because somehow they make people more humane. Unfortunately, there's not much evidence that works. 
Germany in the first half of the 20th century was the nation highly educated in literature, philosophy, and music. And as a medical school professor from Tel Aviv wrote later, what this allowed Nazi doctors to do in the death camps was to march their victims to the ovens while prisoner orchestras pay, played Handel and Bach. Nevertheless, I propose to you that though science is the mind of medicine, the humanities are at its heart. But for your education in the humanities, I think you will find this in your patients and your families, and they will be the best teachers that you will ever have. You will witness and be part of great events in human lives by being with and touching, listening to, and speaking with your patients. Each one has a history and is part of history. Their stories of courage and love and joy and loss and fear and death, in fact, echo the themes of the great authors of the past and that would they used in their famous books, plays, and poems. And it echoes the composers in their operas and ballets and the artists in the finest creations. Now, I think medicine is the greatest of humanities, and I have data to show that this is true. In 1900, life expectancy at birth of an American man was 48 years and of a woman, 51. By 2012, it was 76 years for men and 81 for women. All of this was due largely to medical science, public health, vaccines, antibiotics, the detection, uh, prevention, and therapies of malignancies, cardiac and lung diseases, and more, much more. What greater humanity could there be than one that adds nearly 30 years to life? So having qualified as a humanity, let me go back to science. Dr. Jock Murray, who is an internist neurologist in Halifax, Nova Scotia, said, medicine is a human endeavor that uses science as a tool. Now, that tool was invented by Francis Bacon, called the father of the scientific method, over 400 years ago, replacing centuries of medicine to reliance on authorities, such as Aristotle and Galen, at least in the Western world. Bacon's method was based on inductive reasoning, in which you ask a question, I wonder why, and then propose an answer, which is the hypothesis or theory, could it be? Now, once having done that, you set up an experiment to seek evidence to support or refute the hypothesis. This requires observable phenomena with isolation of them, description, measurement, and numeration. Then you test it with variables and controls. The precise details of the experiment and its results should then be disseminated to other scientists so that they may review, repeat, and potentially redo the experiments and possibly overthrow or modify the hypothesis. There is never in scientific theory in the method, an answer that is the absolute truth. All of it is theory. I was interviewing an applicant to our medical school a couple of years ago who was very twitchy, twitchy fellow, and he was, uh, couldn't sit still, and he made me nervous. So I asked him, I said, what are you so excited about? Evidence-based medicine, he said, at last. And I wondered 
What did he think medical scientists and clinicians did for the centuries preceding evidence-based medicine that appeared 22 years ago? Divination by examination of the entrails of sacrificial sheep? No, we used the scientific method. What is new about evidence-based medicine, and I mention it because you're going to be dealing with it a lot, is that it is so analytically exacting in the rigor of its comprehensive critique of multiple clinical studies that it is now being increasingly used to design what are called practice pathways or guidelines. And that those guidelines, while they can be of significant value, also cannot be believed to be the truth. Because if you do that, we're resurrecting Aristotle and Galen. There's a real problem also in applying any routine pathway to a person, and that is because no unique patient is a cohort, nor a diabetic label, the, uh, a um, diagnostic label like the diabetic. Patients often have non-isolatable phenomena at play, unknown and uncontrolled variables, and suffering cannot really be objectively observed. I know this. A third-year student presenting the history of a woman to me at the bedside said, she says she suffered subjective pain. What other kind of pain is there? For a doctor to apply even the best of evidence-based data to an individual without knowing that person is very risky. You must know his or her complex medical status, but you must also seek to know more about this singular individual. So as far as time, urgency of intervention, and the patient allows, you find out their social situation, their education, their beliefs, their hopes and doubts, their supports and burdens, because to initiate testing or therapies without assessing these things is rather like plating bacteria on an unknown culture medium. It's bad science as well as bad humanism. Yes, today we live and work in the age of informatics. Eighty years ago, the poet T.S. Eliot asked a wonderful question. Where is the wisdom we have lost in knowledge? Where is the knowledge we have lost in information? Scientific findings are information. Knowledge is awareness of what can be done using that information, and wisdom is deciding whether or not to do it. Clinicians are now inundated with information in the form of overstuffed electronic medical records, labs and imaging results, medical websites, decision trees, algorithms, screening guidelines, and best practice pathways. But all of us have the need to scrupulously examine these to see, are they good? What can I do with it? And most essentially, is it applicable to my singular patient now? A lawyer once told me that if ever I was defended in a malpractice suit brought by an unhappy patient and the plaintiff's attorney asked me under oath why I did what I did that may have had a bad result, that I had better not answer, I followed the guidelines because I thought I might be sued if I didn't, but rather I did it because, knowing this patient, I thought it was the right thing to do at the time. The scholars and doctors who publish evidence-based guidelines repeatedly emphasize the absolute necessity of crafting them to the patient. But 
Other assessment of care in, uh, agencies, and there are many of them now looking at us, and there are some inside and some outside of medicine, are not so wise. Uh, last month, I got a letter from a health insurance company saying that according to their screening guidelines, I may have been derelict in not obtaining a yearly mammography on one of my patients. And I didn't. I admit it. Not once did I recommend mammography to her in any of the seven years following her bilateral mastectomies. <laughs> Reversals of guidelines and protocols are commonplace. Estrogens for all postmenopausal women, yes, no. PSA screening for all men of a certain age, yes, no, well, maybe. <laughs> CT scans in the ER for all children with head injuries, yes, but not always. And most recently, breast cancer screening, initiation, and frequently, not sure, arguing now. There had been a remarkable percentage of practice protocols endorsing certain medications, tests, and procedures that turned out in retrospect to make no difference or did more harm than good. Use them, but be careful. A teacher, when I was a second-year med student, gave me advice for which I will always be in his debt. He was both an academic pharmacologist of international status as a scientist and a caring physician who would go nights and weekends onto the streets and to a drug emergency and ongoing care clinic which he helped establish to treat those who were altered by psychedelics, narcotics, and stimulants or otherwise injured in San Francisco's age of Aquarius, the late 1960s and 70s. What he said to me was simple. He said, never be among the first or among the last to use a new discovery. That good teacher was Dr. Fred Myers, whose father of our vice dean of the School of Medicine is also Dr. Fred Myers. He is an internist, this Fred Myers, and oncologist who is a national, uh, national leader in hospice and palliative care. The Myers family history of compassionate father and son made me raise a question. Are certain people destined by their genome to be more humane than others? There is some evidence that this may be true. There's functioning neuroimaging of the brain, PET scans and fMRIs which suggests that people make important decisions not so much on information, on data, which are stored in the neocortex, but rather in older parts of the brain. The midbrain and frontotemporal lobes. And that this is a source of how you feel about the data, which translated is value judgments. And if it is by feelings that we judge what to do with information. You'll need extensive personal contact with patients in vivo, not me mainly in silico. It's a term for computer work my residents taught me, in silico. Because how their patients feel about their symptoms, choices, and you as a doctor, and how you feel about their symptoms, choices, and them as a patient will significantly affect how each of you uses medical information. Whatever you ultimately choose to do or be in medicine, please spend as much time as possible with your patients during your postgraduate years. It will be difficult. I say difficult because doctors are increasingly separated from patients by business-based systems designed for rapid throughput and billing rather than for hand-on patient care.
We are under increasing pressure to get the work done in less time to do it than we had before. And the value of the work seems to be judged by how extensively, not necessarily how pertinently, we record the data. Many, perhaps most residents, spend more time with computers than they do with patients. We cannot allow the progressive erosion of direct doctor-patient interaction to diminish the role of doctors as, in and of themselves, diagnostic and therapeutic instruments. Integrating good science with good understanding of the patient. As the precious time we spend together with patients gets less and less, they may come to be seen as little more than problems to be efficiently solved by following instructions in manuals for maintenance and repairs. And if this happens, medicine will no longer have a proud place among the humanities. You, members of the class of 2014, you are the best hope of those who suffer. You are, whether by genome or acquisition, it really doesn't matter, clever and caring people. Now, as physicians, you have to ask repeatedly, both of yourself and of the systems, are we getting the work done? Don't ask that. Ask, rather, what is the work? You'll find that answer in the oath that you today are about to take. If you can reclaim and exemplify medicine that's true to that oath, you will receive the greatest rewards that patients and doctors can give to one another. New discoveries, wonderful stories to tell, and rich memories to savor of the enduring bond formed of our shared humanity. I believe you can do this. And so I joined in the great pride your families and faculty having you today. Well done. Thank you.